thank you that we've, it just, you're so good. It's just so, so good. We thank you, Father, that you've got us covered, that you know everything ahead of time. You've made provision for everything ahead of time. And Father, as we walk through this journey of our lives together, we thank you so much that you're not a God that just sits in heaven so distant and waits to give us a report card at the end to see how we did. But you're a God who's intimately involved with us and wants to be oh so much more intimately involved with us every moment of every day, so much that you've taken your own spirit and you've put him inside of us to lead us and guide us. You've given us your word, God-breathed word to guide us and direct us to reveal to us who you are. And now you've called us together as part of Christ's body together to be joined together this morning that you would speak to our hearts. And Lord, we look to the Spirit of God to do this. Father, you say some challenging things to us from time to time. And we've been hearing some challenging things, but they come from a Father who loves us more than we'll ever begin to love ourselves. Help us to get out of your way and let us love you. For that, we thank you in advance. Father, may we have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to grasp what your Spirit wants to say to your church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I just had something come to me while I was praying. It's, it's kind of a personal thing. There was a time when early on when, when our son Chris came on staff, and, uh, and, and he was going through some, there was some challenges in his life, not in his marriage or anything. It was financial challenges. And I was a father. I wanted to do everything I can to help. And I was in here in prayer, and I was walking right up that aisle, right in front of the sound booth, and I heard God speak to me as clearly as I've ever heard God speak to me. And he said, will you get out of my way? And I stopped. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you're in my way for what I want to do in his life and show him. Because you're trying to help me out. He said, the things you know about me, you know because you've gone through challenging things and you didn't have somebody trying to help you, you had to turn to me. And you found out how faithful I'd be. Get out of my way of what I want to do with your son. And I'm sharing that with you because I was praying is we get in God's way so, so often of what God wants to do in our lives by trying to help him out as if he needs our help trying to figure out where we need to be, how we need to get there. I'm talking spiritually. And we just need to do what the Word of God says, and then we get out of God's way. Praise the Lord. Let's, uh, Mar- Matthew chapter 16. We're in a series called Follow Me. And the, the real basics of that series is, is that Jesus, this is what God impressed our working with me several years ago. And I know it was in preparation for this church. God is calling us together as a church to go on a journey with Him. Just as Jesus did His disciples, He called them to go on a journey, a three and a half year journey with Him that only began the journey when He left at the end of three and a half years. It followed all the rest of their lives. And God's called us to go on a journey together. And, 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 but the, the, the basic instructions Jesus gives to us is the same instructions He gave to His disciples. It's just simply, follow me. Not follow a doctrine, not follow a church, not follow a teaching, but follow a personal, follow him personally. And we spent time talking about that. And, and when he called his disciples, that's all he said. He didn't tell them where they're going. He just says, 
I want you to, you to come and follow me. And he calls each of us individually to follow him, but if we'll follow him individually, he will make sure we follow him together. And then we began to look at, he didn't tell him anything else, but down the road, he began to tell him some things, and this is part of the road, it was down. And so now what he's telling them here at this point, this has been, they've been walking with him for a while, and Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, or to follow me, let him do two things. Number one, deny himself. And we spent time talking about that because that's just so against our normal nature. It's so against our culture. It's the way against we were. Is everything in our culture and our and our upbringing is to promote ourselves, to protect ourselves, based on ourselves. But Jesus says to deny himself ourselves. And we looked at what that meant. I'm not going to go back over that. And then the second thing he said, which is even harder, is we're to take up our cross and then we can follow him. So what he's saying here is in order to truly follow him. We have to, number one, deny ourselves, which means to deny our right to exist or function or think or act separate from Him. And number two, and this is what we began to look at last time, is to take up our cross and follow Him. That sounds even worse than denying myself. And, and so what does it mean? And yet we looked at the fact that the one who's telling this loves us more than we'll ever love ourselves, gave His life for us, so there's something He sees in this that we don't see. And we looked last week at, at, at how Jesus told the disciples what, that he was going to take up his cross and how Peter rebuked Jesus because it didn't make sense. It doesn't fit in with our normal understanding of how success and victory and how, how what God would want to do with us. Why would a God who saved us now tell us to take up our cross? I thought Jesus died for us. And we saw what happens when we use our own human reasoning to figure out God's method, because when Peter did that, Jesus addressed him and said, get behind me, Satan. You're not considering the thoughts of God, but the thoughts of man. And when we use man's methods, man's reasoning, man's approach to God's ways, we are actually opening the door to allow Satan to work through us to hinder the work of God. Sobering thoughts. And so... So, so God has a way, and then we're going to talk down the road about there's something on the other side of taking up your cross, because Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There's a joy on the other side of your cross. But this coming Saturday is a baptism service, and I, was, uh, I hadn't done this in a while. I really fell on my heart to really spend some time today and talk about what baptism is and why it's so important and what it means so that for several reasons, so that those of you who've never been baptized realize you need to be baptized and that if you're being baptized, understand what it is you're doing. But secondly, to remind or at least or even tell those of you who've already been baptized what you did and what it meant not just then, but what it means today. And this understanding came out of, man, I've been a Christian 40 years. I've been a pastor over 20 years. And a couple of years ago, I was in a pastor's meeting with some friends of mine that are pastors. And one of them made a comment, and it startled me because it was about baptism. And it was, the well, they need to remember the fact that they were baptized. That ought to settle the issue. And I'm like, wait a minute. He sees something in baptism I don't see. And then I began to read, and I realized I, was, I came into the faith through uh, a charismatic renewal and then I went to school in a, church, in a school that teaches word of faith. And that's what this church has basically been founded on. And we tended to have an attitude towards baptism that is something you need to do, 
But when you've done it, you've done it. It's just check off. I was baptized. I got saved, you know. I'm going to heaven. Check all the things off you need to do. And I never really focused on, was never really taught in depth, the significance of this. So I began to look around and began to realize some things, and we're going to look at a few scriptures about this in a minute. But I saw a little video clip uh, on TV about a group called the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists were a group in England, and it began to apply to some other people, who began to, who, 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 um, because the, the church at that time, and many of you were raised in the Catholic Church, and it's the Catholic Church view, is that you're baptized as a child, okay, and that means you're saved. If you're baptized, you're saved. And, 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 and I was, they called it christening, as when I was a child. And so, but the Anabaptists began to look at the Word of God, and they believed that that it doesn't work. That what baptism is, is baptism is, is an act of your will as a statement of your faith, of your commitment to Christ. And when you're a baby, you can't do that. So Anabaptist, if you break the word down, means to be baptized again. Well, they believed in this so much, they were persecuted. Some of them were horribly tortured. And one of the way, things they did to them is, well, you want to be baptized again? They would bind them up, put rocks on them, and throw them in the river. My point is, this must be important enough that these men and women were really willing to be tortured and martyred for the right way to baptize. And then it was really driven home several years ago when Christopher Alam, we just had him here earlier this summer, was here, and the very first message he preaches, a very well-known message for those who know Chris, is, why, why do I preach the gospel? And he went, goes through his testimony, and one of the reasons is for the name of a pastor, and I've forgotten the name of the pastor. Some of you have his book, and, and you may remember it better than I do right now. But when Christopher Alam was saved, he was arrested because his father was a general, and I think it was in the Pakistani army, or Afghan, I think it was, whichever one. But they were, they were Muslims, and to be a Muslim and be converted, you have not just walked out of church, you're an infidel now. And so there was, there was, he was arrested, scheduled to be executed. Uh, he had an act experience where he, the doors just opened, he went out. And, and he meets a, a man, a young man on the street, panning out tracks. He gets saved. And then he, he realizes, I need to be baptized. He went to several ministers to baptize them. And in that country, if you baptize, if you baptize the Muslim that's left the faith, they will come and hunt you down and kill you. Some, some of the local pastors wouldn't do it. But a Baptist pastor from the United States on a trip to the country said, I'll baptize you at the risk of his life. So he did. And this man was hunted down and was executed. Three children and a family. Why would he risk his life to baptize this young man what is so important about baptism that this pastor, that these Anabaptists would literally put their life on the line for something that we've taken so much for granted? Then I looked at some scriptures, and we'll, we're going to look at some of these. In Acts chapter, um, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8 is a story of, uh, right at before this, uh, Philip, we talked about him briefly last week. Philip, uh, no, we died by Wednesday night in prayer. Philip was sent out to, um, I know Axe was in here this morning. You ever have that happen? 
Try having it happen in front of a whole bunch of people. <laughs> Acts chapter 8. Okay, there we are. Verse 34. So what's happened is, is, is uh, Philip was one of the ones selected as a deacon, uh, but he goes beyond that. He's full of the Holy Spirit, uh, and he's, he's walking along this road that the Holy Spirit has directed him to, and he sees a chariot, the chariot's being driven by a, 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 a eunuch who serves the, 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 the queen Candace, an Ethiopian. And he's reading scriptures. And, and the Spirit of God tells Philip to come up and join himself to the chariot. Come up alongside the chariot. And, and, and the eunuch asks him, I don't understand what this means. And he's reading a quote out of Isaiah. So Philip comes up and preaches Christ and explains that the one you're reading about, the prophecy you're reading about, is about Jesus Christ. And he says, so the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask of you, oh, who does the prophet say this man is, himself or some other man? Verse 35. Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scriptures, preached Jesus to him. That's all he did. Didn't explain, just preached Jesus. Now they went, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch, look at this, the eunuch said, see, here is water, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Is the next verse there? Okay. Well, he went down then and he was baptized. So why, why did this eunuch, as soon as he heard about Christ, seeing water, want to get wet? Why did he want to go down? Something he understood about baptism that I'm not sure we understand. Let's look at another example. Let's go to Acts chapter 10. This is a story of where uh, we talked about this, I don't remember, last week, last week or it was Wednesday night. But this is when God introduced, yeah, it was Wednesday night, God introduces into the church the revelation that the church is now going to include Gentiles as well as Jews. And so God has a, a, a very righteous man who, who, who was seeking God, who was a Roman officer, Cornelius, and God has, has, sends a, an angel to him. Peter, miles away, is on the rooftop waiting for lunch to be cooked, and God speaks to him in a vision, puts him into a trance, and shows him that there's going to be somebody come, and they're going to ask for you to go with them, and you're to go with them, because what you've been always taught is unclean, which is the Gentiles, I've made clean through Christ. So Philip, uh, uh, Peter now goes with these men over to Caesarea where, where Cornelius is waiting to hear the fulfillment of what God said. So God is using these two to bring it together. So Peter preaches Christ to him. And we're going to pick up here in Acts chapter 10 verse 44. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard. Now, these were Gentiles. Peter's a Jew. Jews didn't even talk to Gentiles. They were considered unclean. They had no covenant with God. And now God was bridging that gap, showing that the love of Christ goes beyond all borders, all walls, all differentiation. The love of Christ covers everyone that's ever lived. He reaches out to every. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son but Peter doesn't understand this because all of Peter's life and training has been you don't talk about God we're the special people of God we have a special covenant with God and nobody else now God wants to open those doors of that covenant to the Gentile world and aren't you glad he did because almost all of us in here came from that camp so while they're still speaking the words the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard 
And those of the circumcision, that was the Jews, who believed were astonished as, as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues. We're not going to go there. And magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So Peter's first reaction, he doesn't understand what's going on, but he knows this is God because the Holy Spirit fell on them. The evidence he did was they spoke in tongues the way Peter and the disciples did weeks earlier or years earlier in Jerusalem when the Spirit of God was poured out. So he knows this is God. So he his first reaction is, is there any reason why we can't baptize them? So baptism was important enough to Peter that that was the very first thought he had. Let's go to Mark chapter 16. So the, the, the whole message at this point is we need to look at why this is so important. It's been important in the, in the book of Acts. It's been important even to the eunuch who didn't, wasn't raised in, in, in that tradition. It's been important to groups before that have laid their life down for it. It was important enough to the pastor that sacrificed his life so that Christopher Alam could be baptized. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. This is the Great Commission. This is Jesus' last instructions. This is part of it because it's in other accounts. To the disciples, go into all the world, all the world all the world and preach the gospel to every creature and he who believes and is baptized will be saved he who does not believe will be condemned and these signs will follow those who believe in my name they will cast out demons they will speak with new tongues and then it goes on to say other things that they're going to do so we're commanded by Christ to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We have different roles in that. So whatever you give into this church, and especially to missions, but even this church tithes more than tithes. We take the offerings that come in and the tithes that come in, and we send over 10%, well over 10%, out to uh, to missionaries to help fund the gospel into other parts of the world because our commission is to go into all the world. You may not ever be able to go to India, but we support missions in India. You may not be able to go into into Africa, to South Africa, into, into Botswana, but we support missions there. You may not be able to go into Brazil, into other places of the world, but you support missions there with your giving and whatever else you do privately. And then we have opportunities to go ourselves, like to Haiti, the one that's coming up soon. So this is our commission, but notice once you preach the gospel, it says, and, and then uh, 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 go to Lord and preach the gospel to every creature, and he who believes and is baptized will be saved. I'll talk about that in a minute. Well, let me talk about, a little bit about it now. But he who does not believe will be condemned. Notice it, it says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. But when it talks about being condemned, he doesn't talk about baptism. He doesn't say, and he who believes and is not baptized will be saved. And then he goes forth and talks about how the, the, the anointing will flow, but he doesn't refer to baptism again. Because what we're going to find out in a few minutes is there have been major controversies in the church over, over what baptism means, and I'll address that in a minute, whether you've got to be baptized to be saved, and, and we'll talk about some of that in a few minutes. But the point here is, Jesus told us to go forth, and with preaching the gospel, we are to baptize. Acts chapter 2, 
the beginning of the church. They gathered in the upper room. The Spirit of God has been poured out on them in verse 4. Paul, uh, there's the, the, such a commotion in the streets. They're speaking in tongues. They're worshiping God and praying in tongues. They're speaking out in tongues. And a crowd gathers around them and wonders, what does it mean? And Peter stands up and gives a very bold sermon in Acts chapter 2 that ends with this Jesus of Christ, this Jesus who is the Messiah, the Son of God, you crucified. And their response is, what must we do? What must we do? And Peter answers in verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. Notice here there's no mention of, 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 of believing in Christ. So this can't be the whole picture either. So you've got to put them all together. You can't just take one scripture and say, this is what, this is what, what baptism means. You've got to put the whole picture together. But clearly here, Paul, Peter is tying baptism with our salvation. So there's some significance to baptism that's tied into our salvation. And we'll look at that. Well, we'll look at some of it now. To do that, let's understand what the word baptize means. It's not an English word. It's a transliteration. It's, an, it's a Greek word that's been brought in its form over into English, and we now use that as if it were an English word, but it really is a Greek word, baptizo. And there are variations on it. But I did a study on this word years ago, and the root of this word is very interesting, because it most... Most um, uh, dictionaries you look at will talk about it's immersion or something like that. But the word goes back to a time when they would take linen material, white linen, and they would want to change the color. So there were people that would take that white linen and they would dye it. They would take that white linen and they would have a vat or a container of whatever color, of dye of whatever color they want that white linen to be. So if it were a deep blue, they would have a, a vat of deep blue dye and they would take that white linen cloth and they would slowly immerse it in the blue dye. Now you know what's going to happen when you do that if you've ever spilled indelible ink on your shirt. <laughs> indelible means it ain't coming out. <laughs> it's now part of your shirt. And so... As they dip that down in, the fibers of that linen would begin to absorb into itself the blue dye. So that when that was, process was finished and they brought that white linen out, it was now blue linen. It wasn't covered over with, it was now the fibers themselves had taken on the nature of the dye they were immersed into. And the term that was used for that process, the Greek term was baptizo. So the word baptize, as we bring it over into our faith, means to be immersed into something and it becomes part of who you are. And so there are times when it talks about baptized, it's referring to physical water baptism. But there are times when the Bible talks about baptized, it's talked about being baptized or immersed into Christ. 
And in our section where we talked about denying ourselves, we saw that the, under, the foundational understanding of what Jesus talks about is understanding that when you came to Christ and you invited Him into His life, you didn't just begin a relationship with Him, you were brought into union with Him and the two of you became one and the one that you became was Him. So He took your unrighteousness and absorbed it into His unrighteousness. So what we would do is turn it the other way. We would take our dirty linen. And here is a pure vat of pure clear water. And slowly be immersed into that clear water. And that clear water overtakes the filth and dirt of our filthy rag that's being immersed into the clean water. God began to get this across to me one time by saying, your sin is like a, is like a drop, an eyedropper with indelible black ink. And you take it out into this Olympic-sized crystal clear swimming pool and you drop your sin in that crystal clear swimming pool of Christ's righteousness and holiness. Now go try to find it. And so when the Bible talks about baptized, there are times it's not talking about water. It's talking about being baptized into Christ. And that's the basic baptism that the Bible... Because you can get dunked every day you want, and all you'll do is get wet. So with that background, we're going to begin to look at this now. Physical baptism, which is into water, this is what it is. I wish I'd put it up on a slide. But it's, these notes, you can get these notes by downloading, it's in there. Physical baptism is a public declaration of a private commitment that you made to Christ when you were spiritually joined to Him. And you answered your call to follow Him and to deny yourself and to take up your cross. I'm going to read that slowly again. Physical baptism is a public declaration of a private commitment that you made to Christ when you were spiritually joined to Him and when you answered His call to follow Him, deny yourself, and to take up your cross. It's so important to understand this. It's a physical, public act, statement, to you and to the world around you that you have already been made one with Christ. We have a great example which nowadays people don't really understand but 52 years ago in July Anita and I stood in front of a minister and we professed vows to one another. Neither of us were Christians at the time. We professed vows to one another not just in front of the minister but we had witnesses there. We call it a bridal party or a, a groomsman, but they are actually witnesses to the vows that are being shared, a public witness of the vows that are being shared. And then you invite your friends, fams, and Enli, and, and you know, ex-boyfriends and girls. No, no, no. <laughs> See what I got, somebody? You know. But the reason it's public is not just to be able to celebrate the moment. 
The reason it's public is there's something about when you do something publicly, now everybody knows what you did that's there. It's public, because we'll talk about this in a minute, because when you're willing to do something public, you've made more of a commitment to it. I've shared this before, but I remember one of my stepbrothers who'd, we'd been married, I don't remember, 10 years or so, we're down, we're down visiting my mother in Pennsylvania, and he happened to be there with his girlfriend whom he was living with, and he wasn't saved. And uh, he pulled me aside one day, which shows you that, you know, you don't realize it, but the way you live your life can be a witness to even relatives, and they may not. And he pulled, he said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, why did you get married? Basically, what he's saying is, I'm living with this girl, I love her, and I got all the benefits, why do I, and she's willing to live with me, and live with me. Why do, why do I need to do, go through the formal ceremony you went through? And I said, I, got, I married her for the same reason you won't marry your girlfriend. I realized we had to have a fixed moment in time where we made a commitment to each other that we would never go back from no matter what happened and that we needed to do it in front of other people. Oh, he said... I said, because until you make that commitment, what you're telling each other, I can change my mind anytime I want and walk out. And until you make that commitment, you will have time. Because we've had times when each of us has wanted to walk out, many times when we've wanted to walk out, but we can't because we made a commitment to each other that now we have to live out. But it starts with a commitment. And a public commitment seals it even more. Now, if, you've, if you, got ma- you had to have somebody there to marry you, so that part of it was public. All right, okay. Okay. It's a public statement to the world. And once I make this commitment to her, I've done two basic things. I have told her that I have joined myself to you, and by the nature of joining myself to you, I automatically exclude a relationship with any other woman. That needs to sink into somebody. So I'm saying yes to you and no to the world. That doesn't mean I can't talk to people, but I've made a a level of intimate commitment to her that I've now denied to anybody else. It's very important you understand that. So that's what the covenant of marriage is. This is why it's so sacred to God. Why God hates divorce. And I know a number of you have been through divorce. God loves you. I'm not getting into that issue, but it's not God's way. Because it's the breaking of a covenant. In those situations, I'm not, no condemnation, but it's it's important to God. So much that He's part of that ceremony, of that covenant that you make with one another. Because I got to tell you, in 52 years, it's His part of this covenant that's held us together at times. On her side and on my side. Amen's right. You can tell the people that married for a while. Praise the Lord. Alright, now we're going to look at some difficult things. Jesus says difficult things. You don't hear a lot of these difficult things, although I'm hearing them more and more. Matthew chapter 10. So Jesus has already called them to be His disciples. Matthew chapter 10.
He's telling them some things that are going to come, that persecution is going to come. He's preparing them. We're going to pick up in verse 32. Just hear, we'll go through these and then I'll, I'll explain them to you. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. We'll explain that in a minute. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against his mother-in-law. That didn't take a lot of work. A, mo- a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who, this, is, this is what it's about. Because that, those are hard sayings. Well, I thought Jesus is commanding us to love one another, and now He's telling us, I've come to bring strife between you and your relatives. Well, look at verse 38. He explains. This is it, verse 37. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What Jesus is saying here is your commitment to me may cost you relationships. And you're going to have to choose me over those relationships. Paul refers to this process by saying that don't you understand I betrothed you to one husband but to Christ, talking to the church. We are the bride of Christ. We talked under the previous section, we talked about denying ourselves, means that, that we are, what that just means is I'm going to, because I'm in one with Christ, I've got I've to, all my relationships with people is only through Him. And I share with you, when I first read that, it's just shocking, no, 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 it can't be possible, until I realized that's what this principle has you live out. Because in my relationship with my wife, I love her with all my heart. But there's sometimes I do things for her, with her, that have a selfish motive. Don't look at me like that. (laughs) One or two. And when God began to show this to me, it had to change my motive for why I do things for her. I joked with her after we came back from England. I said, this was two weeks I did for you. How much credit do I get for that? (laughs) I was joking because I could not have done it for her expecting credit back. Because then my whole motive was selfish and in God's eyes it doesn't count as a gift at all. But the strength to do that comes from knowing it's Christ in me. So instead of uh, 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 instead of separating us, it makes us, it takes the me out of the middle of the situation and I can love her unselfishly and I'm still working at it. I'm a work in progress. Don't look at me that way. And, and she's a little bit too, okay? We all are, right? So what Jesus is saying here is in, if I am Lord, I have to be first in all your relationships. Which means there may be times when keeping me first will cost you something. That's what he's saying here. Verse 
Verse 38, And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So what is this all about? Let's go back to verse 32. And this is where baptism ties in. He's just saying, and he's also said this earlier before these scriptures we've looked at. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, it requires the ultimate commitment that you have given all of yourself to me, because he's already given all of himself to us before we ever said yes to him. You've given all of yourself to me, and you will be loyal to me above everyone else and everything else. And then he goes on and says, and this is what will co- it will cost you. It may cost you. But look at this principle. He's talked before this about making that commitment. He talks after this about making that commitment. But look what he says about how we make that commitment. Therefore, he who confesses me before men, a public confession of Christ, him I will also confess before my Father. Next verse. But he who denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father. So somehow... What we do about Him publicly, directly connected with what He does with us. And here's the basis of the principle. It's in James chapter 2, verse 18. Now, the book of James, the letter of James, follows the book of Hebrews, which is a letter also. And it's a great balance. The Bible so balances itself out. Because Hebrews is all about, we're not saved, just as Romans are, and Galatians are, and the, most of the other things Paul wrote. Well, we're saved by faith in Christ and not by our works. But James balances that out. And in chapter 1, verse 22, he says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only. Well, Jesus said that too. In Matthew chapter 7, after the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has this little, little parable. He says, he says, there are two builders. Same house, same design. One of them builds this house, a storm comes along, and it washes out into the ocean, it's destroyed. The other builds the same house, same design, same materials. The floods came, and it stands. The difference was one built his house on the rock, and the other built his house on the foundation of sand, And then he goes on to explain, the difference is, he who hears the word and does the word is the one who built his house on the rock. Talks about our life, what's your life built on. He who hears the word and does not do it is the man who builds his life, his house, but the foundation he built it on is not the word, it's anything else. So Jesus taught this same principle. There's something about not just believing something, there's something about acting on what you believe that matures it and makes it real. It takes it from being, those of you that took science, it takes it from being something that's 
potential to being kinetic, from a potential of something to being real in existence. It takes it from being the idea of what a building ought to look like to putting it into plans and schematics that now becomes the building itself. Before this stage was redone five years ago, we sat down with architects and we bounced ideas around and they came up with these, these drawings of what it might, renderings is called, of what it might look like. So it already existed in the mind of the architect and then in my mind before it ever came into existence here. But it would just be an idea. So many of you ooh, are filled with ideas God's given you and they're only going to stay ideas until you begin to act as a step of faith on the idea. So James 2.18 is the same thing. He said, but someone will say to you, I have faith. Now faith is an internal thing. Faith is what you believe inside. And, and I'm looking over the congregation this morning, I can't tell what you're believing. I can tell some things you're believing. You believe that seat will hold you. How do I know that? Because you're sitting in it. I don't see you standing up checking it out. You just came in and plunked your blessed assurance in that nice comfortable seat and got assured. He says, someone will say, I have faith. You say, I have faith. And I say, I have works. Show me your faith. Show me your faith without your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. So our action is very closely connected with what we believe. In fact, that's the difference between belief and faith. Belief is something that's inside of you. It's an, it's a, it's an attitude of your mind and your heart. But faith is when you act on what you believe. And that's when the power of what you believe is released. Did I have you do the next verse? I've forgotten. No. But he goes on to say, basically, he says, demons believe. Do you know demons believe in Christ? And in fact, he goes on, not only they believe, they shudder, they tremble. They believe more than Christians do. But they're spending eternity in hell. Why? They believed, but they never repented because of what they... I don't want to get into that issue. But what they believe doesn't save them. So the public declaration of what we believe does several things. It seals it in us. I'm willing to stand up and say, I've committed my life to Christ. I'm willing to come out of... It's time the Christians come out of the closet. and publicly declare who we are. Because it does something to your faith. It's the act, the physical outward act that seals what you believe. It's like crossing a line. I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. But when you cross that line in front of people, what you believe has now become a reality. It begins to work in your life. And this is what water baptism is about. Romans chapter 6. 
You getting anything out of this? Yes. All right. Now, the background here, it helps understand this. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the believers in Rome. That's why it's called Romans. They've never seen him. This is not like Galatians or Ephesians or Colossians or other letters that Paul wrote which were basically to correct things in specific churches or churches of an area. This was a letter introducing to the believers in Rome who he was and the revelation that Christ gave to him when he was in the Arabian wilderness for three years and Christ revealed to him the doctrine that he, Christ wanted preached So this is the clearest statement of Paul's doctrine that Christ gave him. And it's about grace. This is what Martin Luther got a hold of. It's about grace. And it starts out with basically chapters 1 and 2, basically in chapter 3 saying, we're all sinners. I don't care how good you are. When you measure it against, there's, there's something off in you. Well, the very root of you is, is sin because it's selfish. Even the good things we do for people is so we can feel good about ourselves and that's selfish. In fact, the most unselfish thing you can do for somebody is to pray for them and not tell them to pray for them. Well, I don't want to get off of that. That's a, that's a rabbit trail. So we're all sinners. We've all fallen short, chapter 3 says. And then it says, that's good news. Because the fact that you've all fallen short of God's, of, of, of God's holiness means we qualify for God's grace. Because Paul is basically saying that there's two ways to get into heaven. One's by your own merit, and the other's by what Christ did for you. And if you think you're going to get in by your own merit, you're as deceived. The example I use is when I was in high school, we, it's a long story, we took a high school trip to, um, to Washington, D.C., and we went to see the Washington Monument. I don't think you can do this anymore. But back then you could walk the steps. And I remember how many hundreds and hundreds of steps there are. So we got, a, we got some girls and some boys. So guess what the boys did? We're teenagers, right? We're going to go up the steps. We're going to walk up those. We're going to prove how stupid we are. <laughs> And the girl said, why should I take the steps when there's an elevator that's going to do the work for me and get me to the top? And until we come to Christ, we're trying to go to heaven by climbing the stairway to heaven. Now, we eventually made it. <laughs> and we took the elevator down. <laughs> But those step stops at, I don't know, 500 and some steps, whatever it is. I looked it up one time. But if you're going to heaven, you haven't even begun climbing by your own effort. You don't have enough in you by your own climbing to ever get near heaven. But God's provided an elevator for you. But see, we would have had to humble ourselves. And see, when we climb the steps, we we're trying to prove something about ourselves. And girls had other ways of doing that. But they weren't trying to prove something about it. They just wanted to get to the top. And so this is what Paul's doctrine is teaching that Christ gave him. So he goes through that. Chapter 4, he teaches what faith is. 
Great chapter on faith. Chapter 5, he talks about the application of that faith. How that, how that where one man, one Adam came and his sin released sin into the world and the second Adam comes and by one act of righteousness he pays for it. And he ends chapter 5 by saying, where, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And now Paul begins this chapter. Of course, he didn't write it in chapters and verses. It's a letter. He begins this next thought, realizing, well, people could take this idea that, if all right, if sin abounds, <laughs> let me have at it, because I'm going to help grace abound even more. The more I sin, the more God's grace abounds. I'm going to help God's grace abound by sinning more. And there are people out there that either believe that or try to do it. So that's what Paul's addressing. And so we'll pick up in chapter 6. Paul's way of bringing us back, and this is very much where the church is today, because there's an abundance of teaching out there on grace. And many of it that I've looked at is good, it's well-founded, it's balanced. But if all you ever hear is grace, God is a God of grace, but the book that's been changing my life, and you don't want to read it unless you really are ready to read something like that, is a book called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I read it when I was first saved, and it just, it's, 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 it's strong stuff, but it's true. And God led me to begin to read this several years ago, and it's changed my life, and still working on it. And I've forgotten why I referred to that. <laughs> oh, Lord, help me. Go back to that. Oh, Yes. It begins by talking about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. I thought grace means it doesn't cost me anything. Grace means it costs Christ everything to pay for you. But what we've got an attitude is, I like the way he puts it. He said, we think that grace redeemed our sins. No, grace redeemed the sinner. He redeemed you. But when we join ourselves to Christ, you can't be in Christ unless you let go of something to be in Him. So it costs Christ everything, but true grace costs you something also. Not to get into heaven, it costs you yourself, your selfishness, your self-centeredness, the me part. Because all the sins we commit or are committed against us are somehow rooted in self. And the ultimate sin that man commits is self. We put ourselves, and I've gone over this and over this before. So, I didn't mean to get into all that. But, so, these words are very appropriate for the church today. Because now having encouraged them of what grace is all about, what Christ did for them, he now wants to bring them back to a balance and remind them that with this grace goes a response. Understand what you did. This is what he's saying here. Understand what it is you did when you came to Christ. Now, if you're like me, I had no clue what I did when I came to Christ. I wasn't entirely sure it got me into heaven. I just knew I came to Him. And gradually, as I've read my Bible, as i prayed and I've gone to school and grown, the reality of what He did for me is still getting through to me. But then the reality of what I committed to Him is beginning to through to me. To go back to 52 years ago, I was, 20, I was barely 21 years old. No, I was 21 years old. That's right. I was almost 22. I was 21 years old. 
I was 21 years old. I, I was 21 years old. We were young. She was young. I won't tell you how old she was. I was barely 21 years old. Not saved. No clue what we were doing. I came from a family, was the, my parents were divorced when I was eight. Messed up family, dysfunctional family. Hers was, had stayed together, but they had their own issues. So I had no training, no background. All I knew is I had met this nurse. Woo! I better careful. I can still, still remember how I, I met this nurse. And I fell for her. All I knew, because I told you the story of how I was, I don't know, we'd have eight, I'd have an eight-hour drive to go see her, and an eight-hour drive back. I don't get into that because we'll run out of time. But I, I, every moment I wasn't with her, and I'm three or four hundred miles apart from her in college, and she's in, a, she's in Cincinnati, and I'm in upstate New York. I can't wait to be with her. So all I knew when we got married, I don't have to leave her anymore. We're going to be together. I just wanted her. No concept of responsibility. No, my point is, I had no idea what I commit, but I committed something to her, and I had no understanding of what it was. And in the course of 52 years, I'm beginning to understand. (laughs) Pray for her. I've begun to understand what that commitment I made 52 years before requires. When you came to Christ, you committed your life to Him. Most of us have no understanding what we were doing. But we're in the process of learning and growing in what that commitment means. I remember early on as a Christian down on my knees one day because I began to realize, you know, what have I gotten into, Lord? And I said, I looked and began to realize what this, what some of these scriptures, and I said, I can't do that. Lord, I just, I, I, you know, I felt like I betrayed him. I was a brand new Christian. And the Lord said to me, he says, you made a commitment. You were serious in the commitment you made to me, weren't you? I said, yes. He said, I treat you today as if you're actually carrying out that commitment ahead of time. And in the process, you're going to learn to walk it out. See, God doesn't sit there and say, well, you made a commitment to me 25 years ago, and you're not doing too good a job. God's side of that commitment is treating us as if we're fully living it out. Isn't that amazing? Now, if we did that in marriage, it would turn some marriages around. Well, I'm not going to be committed to you. You're not committed to me. What if God did that with us? See, God doesn't meet your commitment level with His commitment. He doesn't meet your commitment level with the same commitment level. Otherwise, none of us would ever get saved. I better read through these. So this is what Paul's doing here. What shall I say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin... Notice the tense there. It's past tense. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Do not you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? 
He's talking here about that first root meaning of baptized, meaning immersed in like the cloth into the dye. As many of you have been immersed into Christ, don't you understand that you were immersed into His death? In other words, you were immersed in Him and now just as that, that cloth takes on the characteristics of the dye, you're taken, you've taken on my characteristics. Don't you know what you did? If you understood what you did, you never think of, well, if grace, if sin abounds, grace much more abounds, I'm going to presume on that grace. But I also believe he's referring to the physical baptism. Because remember what the physical water baptism is. It is a physical, public declaration of a private commitment you made to him. So he's also reminding him, I'm reminding you not only of the private baptism that you entered into with Christ of your heart, but I'm reminding you that you have a physical act you did. We remember people were there and saw it. Therefore, verse 4, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Because he goes on basically to say, if you've been united united in the likeness of his death, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. That song we sang, or we, of Lauren Daigle's, about he's still rolling stones away. See, the, the, where we're going to go with this is, yes, you, take up your, you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Him, but where is He now? He's been raised from the dead. He's walking in a newness of life, and that newness of life is there for every one of us, but the only way to the newness of life is through the denial of yourself and take up your cross, through the death, being united with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. So where does that leave us? Just a couple of thoughts, and then we'll end. First of all, I've studied and I'm still studying some of these different ideas about baptism. Don't get hung up on those. The issue is if you've been baptized or not. If you have not and you're a Christian, you need to be baptized. So don't get hung up, well, I don't know, as I, you know I'll get into some of these things in a minute. If you've not been baptized, if, you, if you've not been baptized and you've made a commitment to Christ, you need to do it and you need to do it now to make your commitment public to Him. Now most of us have already been baptized, but we need to go back and remember what it was, what, what, what the commitment was when we were baptized. You made a public declaration that you have joined yourself to Christ in His death, in His burial, and then His resurrection. Whether over in this room or in some other place, in some lake or someone, you made a public declaration just as Anita and I did 52 years ago. Now God's calling us to live out the commitment that we made. So a baptism service is a time, just like when we go to somebody else's wedding, it always reminds me of the vows we made. I can remember that day. I can remember some of the feelings, but I remember most of the vow and commitment I made to her. It reminds us against, again that we're one in all the issues of life that would pull at us. This is why we encourage you to come and be part of a baptism service. What we're working on is being able to do it in a Sunday morning service. So pray for us because we have a tank over there. We have a camera. So what we can do is show the baptism over there on the screens up here as part of a service. 
But we need... But, but it requires special switching equipment, if I understand correctly, so I can show it on the screen. Well, I wouldn't, but so that they can show it on the screen. So believe God with me for the money to buy that equipment. Because then we can do this. And then we can all participate in this as we do at a wedding. All right. And then there are other ways that other churches do. We may go even further with it. So then it raises the question, what if I was baptized as a child? Or as I was christened as a child? Is that enough? Well, one of the theology doctrines is if you can only be baptized once. That's one idea. I tell you how I wrestled this with. I believe that if baptism is not save you, and I don't believe it does, but I believe it's important because Jesus told us one of the two things he told the church to do. To the Lord's table together, it's a sacrament, and then baptism. So they're important enough to the Lord, we need to do them. Because they're both a physical act that reminds us of our union with Christ. That's what communion is, and that's what baptism is. But in order for that to mean something to you, you've got to understand what you're doing. So my personal belief is that baptism is only for a... a, I don't say you have to be an adult. Someone that has made a commitment to Christ, understands the commitment they made, and understands what this act of baptism is going to mean. So sometimes we get requests for little children, and the question is, what do you understand? What does that child understand? They don't need to know the whole theology of it. So having said that, my view when I became a Christian and I understood some of these things is that what I did as a child, if my parents even understood what it meant, I didn't. I had no say in it. It was not an act of my will. So it was not a public declaration of mine of my commitment to Christ. It may have been a public declaration of my parents. I don't even think it was that. But it was not my public declaration. So my personal belief is you, if that happened as a child and you've not been baptized since you were a Christian, that you can do that. We will let you do that at least. Let's put it that way. All right? Praise the Lord. All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are know us so well, that you give us ways, physical things that you tell us to do that help us make so real down in our heart and in the depths of our mind of what you've done for us and the commitment that we've made to you. Father, help us today with what we've heard to begin to process that in our own mind, in our own lives. Thank you, Father, that you give us this gift of water baptism, that we may seal it in our hearts and in our minds, that we belong to you, and we're joined to you in your death and your burial, and we will be and have been in your resurrection from the dead. Father, I pray this morning for anyone that's here this morning that may never have given their life to Christ, that at this moment you would make...